How different is it being an executive in a high growth startup versus starting your own company? Turns out it's a pretty big deal. In today's episode of Higher Learning, I talk with Jimmy Spire, the co-founder and CEO at Glasshouse.biz. Jimmy and I had a wonderful conversation talking about his hiring philosophy and how he manages expectations up front, what it's like to move into the startup scene in Nashville, and what his thoughts are on building engagement with your employees, whether you're working in an office or working remote. Jimmy has so much to say, has a great company, and is doing a lot of big things. I can't wait for you to hear this episode and hear what he had. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning, and Happy New Year to everybody. It's January 4th, 2024. Very excited for today's special guest out of Nashville, Tennessee. I have Jimmy Spire here, and he is the co-founder and CEO at Glasshouse.biz. How you doing, bud? Good, Alex. Thanks for having me, man. Happy New Year. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you, and and I want to dive in here. Let's start here, though, because it is a new year. I'm still feeling really vibrant, ready to attack the year. A lot of energy, a lot of reflection over the past few weeks. Do you have any resolutions, personal, professional, that you want to share with us? Um, so I'm not going to share the details, but I'll tell you how I do it. So every year in December, I sit down and I write down five personal and five professional goals that I want to accomplish on the year. And then I go back and I measure how I did the year before, and I make sure that they are separate in terms of things that have something to do with my family or my kids or my own health and something that has very specific focus on my business life right so i think we'll maybe talk about that more uh, in terms of how i think about incorporating those together and how they all work together but uh yeah every year i do it i sit down takes I, then i come back to it a couple of weeks later and revisit it takes a couple of sessions so how are you grading yourself based on 2023 did you did you hit them all no so I never want to hit them all. I want to miss a couple. Because if I hit them all, I didn't set everything hard enough. Okay. Um, so I'm trying to miss one if I can. I don't plan out which that'll be. But I'd like one to come up and be like, and I'll just go get ready, yellow, green. How'd I do? I love it. I love it. All right. So let's get into it, man. You, you've played some really important roles in some SaaS startups. You've been involved with some different exits. Um, you know, I wanted, I wanted to kind of talk to you because I know you're in a little bit of a different role now, but can you tell us about a little bit of your work history? You can maybe tell us your role with each company. I'm very interesting. I love that what we talked about in terms of your journey um, before you founded your own company most recently. So tell us a little bit about the roles that you played in the SaaS world and maybe some of the learnings as, you, as you've had this much success. Yeah, so I've been in the revenue side of SaaS for about 13 years. Um, so that would be mostly sales, but sales and marketing. And I've had you know three really key roles along the way. I was at a company to start up with uh, called Restaurant 365. And I was, I think, the 19th employee at the company. And so over the course of four years, we took that company through kind of really hyper scale. Uh, I started as an account, account executive. So I was just a member of the sales team. There was three of us. And I really saw it as an opportunity to build something earlier from scratch. I had been an account executive at a company in the same space. Um, that had gone through a PE exit. And I kind of noticed really, really quickly, this is like 13 years ago, so I was kind of a young person back then. Um, I noticed really quickly that I wasn't going to get a lot of opportunity at a PE-owned company that was that size. It was relatively small. They are just going to hire people. So I went to this really small startup because I knew that they weren't and that would give me that opportunity. And I was part of taking that business all the way up through to, uh, you know, 25 to $35 million in run rate, 125 people on our sales team, manager, director, VP, uh, all along the way. And really, uh, I'd say that one was all about growing, trying, and learning, right? Like personal growth, trying a lot of new stuff. And I like to say I condensed 20 years of SaaS experience into about four 
by making every mistake you could possibly make as fast as you could possibly make them. Yeah, I love that. What a great decision on your part. And obviously it led to a bunch of success. I'm interested, you know, I've spent a lot of my career working with enterprise companies and people, and I've mm -hmm. worked a lot in the SaaS and startup space now over the most recent three or four years. I'm interested if anybody was coming up to you and wanted advice on, hey, I've been working in these really large environments, but I, I think I want to go into a startup. What would you tell them? What advice do you have for them? What would you like? What kind of characteristics do you think are kind of key to be successful in those types of environments? Why do you want to do this? Like, what what is it you're actually looking for, right? Um, that's actually the first question I ask people for most job change reasons, especially people who want to become a manager or if you want to come down to a really small company or go to a startup or if these these kind of like really kind of like big departures from what you're doing now. What's motivating that decision? Because it's not going to be what you think it's going to be. Yeah. Because you have no idea what it's going to be because you've never been there before. You think manager is going to be the easier job. It's the harder job. You think the smaller SaaS startup is going to be uh, more fun. It's way more stressful because you're white knuckling this thing. Sometimes you could be, you know, the part that they don't tell a lot of people at SaaS startups is if we don't hit the numbers long enough, we're all going to be out of a job because the place won't exist anymore. And we get to work here by making it successful, which gives us this hyper growth opportunity to grow our careers. It's like symbiotic. But if one part of that equation isn't working, which is we're not accomplishing the goals, it's not Google. It's not just going to trudge along under its own power forever. And you really matter here, really matter here. But that yeah. means that what you do really freaking matters here. Like if you're not doing a great job, then the company is going to feel that. Yeah. If you I, don't I, do a great job at NetSuite, it'll take a while for them to notice. I promise. Yeah. If you, do a really, if you don't do a great job at a 25-person startup, then not only will everybody probably see that right away, but the business will feel it right away. Yeah. And, and that can only lead to you know animosity and, and probably not having a job for very long. I know plenty of people that have been in corporate America for many, many years and um, have been able to be a wallflower, been able to do just enough to get by. There certainly is a transparency and nakedness in a startup that's very, very different. And if somebody was asking me and saying, hey, I want the upside, I want the autonomy, I'm like, you better have your stomach ready for this. And you better understand that you're working under high pressure, constant timelines. And 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 like you said, like if it doesn't go well, then there's nothing else to go to work to that next day. And so if you're okay with that and you can deal with those that velocity and those ups and the downs, maybe. But otherwise, not the world for everybody that they think it is or not what they see on TV and movies, at least, right? Yeah, I think people generally, I haven't seen a lot of people come from a really big company down to a really tiny one and find it comfortable for them just as much as I have seen a lot of people from small companies go to a big one and, and feel kind of a little bit held back or right? like that there was the, there's too much bureaucracy for them and they felt like they couldn't really truly move at the pace or that have the impact that they want to have because you get used to those experiences right you learn how to behave within those environments and it's really hard to shift that mindset yeah the way you win is just so much different i tell people all the time that the transition from industry to industry usually pretty easy right um, mm -hmm. the, the, the transition from say function to function, say maybe going market to te marketing to technology or HR operations also possible. The biggest and most difficult transition I see is going from a large enterprise environment into that startup environment, because what you do, you're so siloed in the bigger environments to a degree and what you do to win in those environments, you can't like, it, it just doesn't work. And I've seen it firsthand within my own company and I've seen it within other startups and other enterprise companies. And very quickly, people tend to go back. To what they're used to and what they're comfortable with, because you have to almost relearn everything that made you successful, which can be very, very difficult, especially if you're later on in your career. So 
Yeah, you kind of have to make it happen on your own when you're a really small company. Whereas at a really big company, you are the steward of making sure it continues to happen. And that's kind of a different perspective. It's a different starting point in the game, right? You're starting on third base. Uh, you're starting on like the dugout if you're in a small enough startup, right? Like outside of the stadium, probably. So you're going to have to figure it out a lot. And you have to function with a lot of ambiguity. You got to be able, like totally okay with truly directional leadership where they say storm the hill. And then that's about the only direction they're going to give you. I love that steward almost versus a builder, which are just just two completely different skill sets and 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 everything. I really like. That. And they're both important, by the way, right? Like if I'm running a Fortune 50 company, I don't necessarily want that big risk taker builder running around changing everything all the time any more than I want the steward of the existing success coming in and starting from day zero, right? Sure. Neither of those make any sense. Like we talk about jobs and companies are always about fits for people. Um, now, you and I talked a lot about, so listen, I know what work-life balance is. I have people in my company or in interviews that have brought it up before. So I, intellectually, I understand it. It's always been a little bit different for me. And I get my perspective is unique because I, I, I founded the company. There's a different level of passion and buy-in and risk that comes with that. Um, and what I've always felt like is that I never really demarcate a line between when I'm working and when I'm playing or when I'm like focusing on, like, certainly there are hours I'm in an office. I'm certainly working from home sometimes too, but I'm also having fun a lot of the time in the office and I'm living life and we'll go to a happy hour, have a nice lunch and relationship build or talk about fantasy football. Those happen during traditional work hours. And I find that to be important to growing great culture, great relationships, great trust among team members. Conversely, I might be home at night one, one day or I might be on a weekend and if something comes in, I'm going to usually respond to it. I might be working on a presentation later than traditional work hours. Those things tend to integrate for me. So even when I travel a lot of times, there's still times I'm picking up work because I never kind of see where those things stop and start. I just kind of see them as blended. And I love my work and I'm challenged by my work. So I feel great about that. So you and I talked about that, that work-life harmony and that balance. I know that you have a similar feeling, but you were even more articulated about it. So tell me about how you got to this viewpoint and what it means to you. It's, it, it's, it is about work-life harmony for me. And again, I do also respect the fact that like, you know, as a founder, you know, it's, it's, it can be a little different, right? Uh, I learned very early from one of my team members, he said, we can't expect the person we hired yesterday to care more about the business than the CEO who founded it, right? That's not a fair expectation. I'm like, we can't expect it, but they're well, they're welcome to do it. Like, totally okay. It's their prerogative. We should, yeah. we don't have to, we can't, we shouldn't have to ask or we shouldn't ask for it that it's everybody's ability to put whatever they want into whatever it is they're passionate about. So leave that door open for those people who want to behave that way. Harmony for me is about matching what I want to be doing to the way that I've designed, designed my life. And the reason that work-life balance for me just is, maybe it's just uh, vernacular, maybe it's terminology, but that means that things are in balance. And sometimes you need to be out of balance to accomplish something that is uncommon. And so if you think about people who have been out of balance, people like to talk about athletes a lot, right? Like Kobe Bryant or whoever these people are, very out of balance life, all in on one thing. But what about Van Gogh or Mozart or Beethoven? All creatives, also incredibly unbalanced in certain parts of their life, who then accomplished incredibly unbalanced outcomes. Outsized outcomes generally require out of balanced inputs in my perspective, my belief and my experience. And so what I'm trying to do is get to a point where I've created my life around 
not really drawing a hard line between what is my personal life, what is my work, I find that puts them at odds with each other. They're fighting. I've got to sit there and weigh them. Did I spend enough on this one or that one? Oh, now I have to put one more bucket here so I can put another bucket there. I don't measure it because I don't want to put them into an oppositional direction. I want them to all be supportive of my outcome goal. And my outcome goal is to build this company or it's to get my family to Nashville and it's to build this house or it's to retire at this age or whatever the outcomes I'm trying to build to where I do, I sit down every year and I look at the five things on each side. Everything's pointed at those five things and I'm not drawing hard lines between what is and what isn't me. Work is a big part of my life because work is a big part of all of our lives. You work for a lot of your life and to draw, to try and segment that off. I had a, a mentor that talked to me about this specifically to carve out your work from who you are as a person is to actually take a huge part of your experience as a person and try and segment it away from the rest of your life. And I, that to me is just not a, a whole, it's not my whole person. It's not who I yeah, am. I, I really love that. Now, listen, I, I will say that there's probably a big segment of people that they don't want their work to be any part of their identity. You're right. They spend a lot of time doing it, but it's like, I'm sitting here nine to five, collecting my paycheck and I'm on my way out at the same time. For me personally, like that's so foreign to me because I think there's a lack of fulfillment there. You're spending so much time there with these people and not getting the max out of it or the most out of it that you can, or even having that intention to me is just so foreign to me. I think the other thing that you said is that a lot of times it can be a moment in time too. Now for guys like you and me, I don't really know that I foresee a day where I'm not working or I'm not invested in my work in some capacity, right? But I think a lot about hard, uh, easy decisions, uh, hard decisions now, easy life later, right? Uh, easy, uh, hard, uh, easy decisions. Now, hard life later, hard decisions. Now, easy life later, meaning like maybe sometimes you're going to be out of balance for a five, 10 year run where you're doing all these different things, but that's because later on in life, you want to be able to have that time with your family. You want to have geographic mobility. You want to have the financial independence to be able to do the things you want. I know a lot of people look at it that way too. So for me, I totally agree with you. I call it work-life integration, work-life harmony. I think those things are very alike, but it also could be a moment in time. I don't know that it's ever perfect balance, but maybe when you look at it on a long enough timeline, for somebody who's successful, there can be more balance there. But I think it's really hard to do that. If you're trying to do get equilibrium at any given moment in time, I think that's a fool's errand. The other thing I'd say to that is I like what I'm doing. If I like the work I'm doing, I enjoy it. Um, you know, don't tell everybody I do it for free, right? Like it's, if you, if you could afford to do it for free and you still would, then what are you trying to get away from it from, right? Nobody ever once complained about their work-life balance was totally out of balance because they're spending too much time at the beach. Whenever people say it's out of balance, it's always that work is too much. It's never personal life or fun or at the beach or it's always the work part that seems to be invading the personal part. And so I think that that means for me, look at what you're doing and do you actually like what you're doing? If you're always trying to run away from it, yeah. then maybe find something that you're trying to run a little bit further closer to and it won't feel like it's taking so much of you away. Couldn't agree more. Uh, really, one of my passions is that I believe everybody deserves the love of the work that they do. I don't think it's as difficult as people think it is. I think finding purpose, finding people that you like working with, finding a mission that drives you and finding work, we tend to stick with what we're good at, right? We never quit things that we're really, really good at, right? And so I think if you find where that kind of flow comes into place, where you're passionate about it, you're good at it, you can make money doing it, then you're right. It can be really an unlimited and infinite type thing. And I think for so many people who, 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 to your point, worry about their balance, 
not really enjoying their work or they're not finding purpose in their work. So I think that's a really good call out by you. I never heard anybody talk about the lack of balance at the beach. The other thing I put to that is thinking about what do you want? What is it you're trying to accomplish, right? If you say what I'm trying to accomplish is to maximize my time on this earth with friends and family or living in Costa Rica or then what you need to put into that might be different than if you said, I want to leave my mark on the on this earth by building the world's largest foundation for people with sickle cell anemia or a giant company that returns 50 billion. If you want a really unusual event, you're probably not going to have the same experience as somebody who wants an event that doesn't require that same level of balance adjustment or focus or effort or time or whatever the thing is. And so really it comes to me is aligning your goals with what you, makes you happy, what you're willing to do. Um, I worked with a professional coach. He's like, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm not even here to tell you how to do it. I'm here for you to be held accountable, to do the things that you know you need to do to accomplish the goals that you set for yourself. I don't care what your goals are. They don't matter to me. <laughs> what matters to me is helping you do the things you say you need to, to accomplish them. I love it. Jackie, I think we got a breakout video there. That's some good stuff there, Jimmy. I really appreciate it. Uh, so you're now the founder of your own company, glasshouse.biz, that you started recently. I want to know a little bit about why you decided to go this route, right? And what you've learned maybe opposed to the previous roles where you were part of someone else's kind of vision and now you're kind of creating your own. So co-founder, first and foremost, so I've got two co-founders with me. Um, we all share in the the business and started this together. Myself, Mike and Patrick. Um, I knew it was time when I really, really was able to accept the fact that I was putting so much of myself into other people's businesses, but it was, it was still theirs. It's like loving your nieces and nephews. Like you love your nieces and nephews, but it's not the same as your kids, right? And so you're spending all this time. Imagine if you were helping raise and invest your nieces and nephews and you were paying for their life and going them to call like investing your time, right? Like I'm investing my time in your business. That's the niece and nephew. You're like, just like when you know it's time to have kids, I got to the age, I'm like, it's time to have my own kids. It's time to have my own my own uh, business. And so, you know, having founders that I felt like were like good partners in that, who had vision, work ethic, we aligned with. When we sat down and founded the business, one of the first things we did was define how did we want the business to operate around the idea that we had. It wasn't, let's go build the software, let's hire a bunch of people, then figure out how the business works and what the culture is going to be later. We're like, that has to start on day one. So finding people you're aligned with was super important. But I knew it was time when I was starting to realize that I needed to kind of, you know, have my own kids. So that actually, that led to you looking at it from a personal perspective, led to what you needed to do from a business perspective. That really kind of crystallized it for you. It was certainly a comparison point for me in my experience. You know, I have a seven and a nine-year-old now, so it took me a while to get to this point um, from that. But having had that experience of, of having your own children, um, you know, before I had kids, I always thought it would be nice, maybe fine. Just like, you know, how much do you like love your nieces and nephews? You totally love them. But I thought it would be similar to that experience. And then when you had your own kids, I realized, oh, this is a really different experience. And so... That kind of led me down the path of saying someday I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to do mine. And so when I became, uh, you know, when I got to the point where I had the ability and the time felt right and I had the partners lined up and, you know, I really felt like I'd experienced enough things that it was going to give me a better chance at a really high risk, uh, you know, endeavor, then I was still thinking about that. I knew it was somewhere I wanted to go though, eventually. 
Yeah, I love that. So what can you tell us about glasshouse.biz, the technology, the business? What what is it? What does it do? What is it about? If people are looking for what they come to your company. So we are basic we are creating a new category for home services businesses to research, rate, and review their customers. So there has been just a ton of opportunities for individuals, consumers to research your business, review your business, rate your business, whether you own a you know pest control company, you're a plumber or an electrician or any kind of business really. But there is no way for a business to understand the relationship they're getting in with their client ahead of time. So they end up potentially working with a bad fit or somebody who's not going to ultimately align to the way they want to deliver the service or they don't get paid or whatever the bad outcome is for those businesses. There is no way for them to understand what they're walking into ahead of time. So what we've done is we've created a platform where businesses rate, review and research clients to determine, is this the type of buyer that I actually want to work with? Just like you rate research and review businesses to determine, is this the person I want to work with for this job ahead of time as well. Super interesting. So does that like span across different types of services or is it siloed and and, and through a vertical of a service? Meaning like, um, you know, this person uh, working with this electrician had a bad experience. So if I'm an electrician, I go and I look there and I don't want to work with that person or is it span across a bunch of different services with that independent customer and family? So it's pretty much anything in home services. So if it touches the home or the homeowner, the home, you know, uh, residential uh, services market, then it's pretty broad across that because that's a huge part of the economy, but it doesn't go into things like, you know, your accountant or your uh, auto repair shop. Um, yeah, those are certainly opportunities down the road, but we, we decided to pick the home services market because it's somewhere where this pain is really felt acutely because those people uh, servicing your home often are getting paid later. Um, they are really living and dying on those reviews of their business and the opinions of their buyers. I love it. That's awesome. All right. So let's take this in a little bit of a different direction. You recently moved to Nashville and everybody who's listened to this podcast and knows me, we have an office out there. I'm a big Nashville advocate. Um, they're trying to bring me on the Chamber of Commerce. I'm deciding if I want to do that. But you lived in Austin and Indianapolis prior to this. Why Nashville? And then do you miss anything about Indianapolis and Austin? So we actually ran a process on where to live. So we had lived in Austin for quite a while. That's where I grew up. That's where I'm from. Um, we moved to Indianapolis for a job. So I was uh, going from Restaurant 365 to another company, Greenlight Guru, and that was moved to Indy. All the executives are here in Indy, and I felt like it was really important to be there with the other members of the executive team. Having been a remote executive previously, I was like, that's going to be valuable to my experience and my outcome. And this COVID thing just started like two weeks ago, and it's going to blow over in like two weeks. Like, remember that? <laughs> remember two-week COVID? Remember yeah. we'll all be back in the office in two weeks? So I said, let's just sell the house, move to Indy, sight unseen, um, buy a house on FaceTime, and just drive into town. Like uh, like that will be the firm. They just buy the house and they move there, right? Yeah. Um, luckily, it wasn't a bunch of mafioso criminals running the place, but I did end up working out of my basement for the next two years because COVID uh, just wouldn't quit. So we were in Indy for that job and for that purpose. And I told my wife, you know, if this isn't our place forever, Let's go here. Let's accomplish this mission. Let's do this thing and have this big outcome with this company. And then we can go wherever you want. And so we ran a sales process. Basically, we toured different cities. We went to Raleigh. We came to Nashville. We thought about going back to Austin. And um, we really just fell in love with it. When we, the first time we drove into town, we we're like, this is our place. I love it. Yeah, there's a lot to love. Yeah. Um, great food, great people, great music, great business, great startup community. So 
big, big fan. I'm looking forward to on my next trip there, which is pretty soon. Maybe we can grab a bite. Yeah, out. yeah, have to get together. We love it here for all those. We love it here for all those reasons as well. Um, and certainly, Miss Austin and Indy have their their upsides. Austin's too hot though, so couldn't make it back. Um, but the, do miss the tacos and the barbecue. Um, Indy's great. We love the people we met there. School's awesome. Um, but ultimately, we're looking for just a little more of a southern city. And Nashville checked all the boxes. I love that. My favorite thing about Austin is a lot. My brother lives there, so maybe he'll get mad if he hears me say this, but I love the brisket tacos. My God, those are my favorite things in the world. Love waking up and going and get one of those. So, um, yep, for sure. Hiring podcast. Got to talk about talent. Got to talk about hiring. You've been involved in high growth companies. You've got your own company. So I know you got a lot of great answers here for us. So let's start here. Overall hiring philosophy for people that you want to bring into your team. Do you have one? I do. The first principle for me is to set the expectation incredibly clearly. So, you know, job markets become tight or loose over time rights with the buyer's markets, the seller's market. And so you're in this situation sometimes where the employees or applicants are saying whatever they can to get the job because it's a hard market to find a job in. Then recently, a couple of years ago, it was the opposite. Companies were selling everybody on why to come here. And so you can get two people that are, one of them is really willing to commit to things they don't necessarily believe in. And the, to me, the biggest thing you can do is to be really, really transparent as a business on what you actually want from the people that you hire and set the expectation from day one. A lot of companies do a new hire orientation or do you a walkthrough of their culture and all that stuff after you take the job. Sure. But that's, that's like, hey, let's have the conversation about whether we, not we want kids after we get married. Maybe we should have already had that conversation, right? I like that. And so actually, I like to do that walkthrough of who we are, what we believe, why you will or won't like it here. Here's the things you, if you don't like this, you won't like it here. If you want this, then you might like it here. And here's what we're looking for. Yeah. And I so for that. me, the, transparency, I think, is the way I would uh, uh, kind of summarize that. But that's the way I think about it. I love that that's your philosophy off the top. I love the idea that setting the expectations to find those great fits for your company is something that shouldn't be happening to your point in onboarding or six months down the road. It should be happening in the interview process because as much as you're making a decision on somebody, they're making a decision on you. And then there's going to be things that you just can't find out during an interview process that hopefully if you give the right information, people can self-select out and you're always better off if those people don't end up at your company, if they weren't going to be a fit in the first place. So I think that's really smart. Um, I do a couple of things like that here at company. I'm always trying to tell them, hey, here's what we're good at. Here are things that some people have struggled with in the past. So you have to be comfortable and understand that up front. It doesn't mean no good to kind of put lipstick on a pig on certain situations. There's many things that are great here, but it's not always puppy dogs and lollipops. And here are some of the obstacles mm -hmm. you might run into that might not be a fit for you. I also do that whenever I don't, I haven't hired too many people direct reports to me for a while, but when they do, I do have someone start, I do give them kind of a, this is who I am. Like, these are the things that are important to me. Here are the eccentricities I have. Here are the norms that we have as a company. And I want you to understand these and know these because I'm evolving, I'm growing, I'm getting better, but there's certain things about me that some people love and, and some people just, it's not for them. And so I'd love you to know that up front because it's really important that we're compatible, we get along. And I really want that manager relationship to be very strong. And part of that is knowing who, who, I, who I am and obviously knowing a lot about who they are, what motivates them and what's important to them. Yeah, I agree. So there's one of the places I took this from was um, Ernest Shackleton. He 
took a whole expedition to Antarctica, like, you know, 150 years ago, yep. he posted the newspaper. This is how we recruited for that job. Okay. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honored recognition in the events of success. Full crew. Boat was full. That's your philosophy right there. You want only people who read that and say, I'm in. Well, so we, what I did is I rewrote it for, you know, a modern audience, right? So people wanted for incredible journey, huge learnings and career growth available, chances of success slim, path unclear, difficult terrain certain, legendary status available to those who seize it, massive upside in the event of success. Ooh, I like that. That's good. Wow. So um, are you into it? And usually the people who are, get excited about that, then they're going to really enjoy all that hard. They're going to enjoy all of those things. The people are like, Ooh, that makes me uncomfortable. I'm like, oh, I'm glad that makes you uncomfortable because that means that you're learning about what this place is going to be like before you have to experience it. I like that. I might steal that. That's good stuff. All right. So listen, memorable interviews. Maybe it's one that you interviewed somebody or you went in and interviewed for a role. Any memorable experiences come to mind when I ask you about that? You don't have to name names, of course. No. Um, so the best, so somebody uh, that was the best interview I ever had was I'd interviewed her five or six times, but for different jobs across two different companies. We worked together at two different companies and then um, I was uh, hired, this person ran out of college and then they moved up through the sales organization. Then they came with me to another company. And the reason it was memorable was they didn't treat it like they already worked there. It was really interesting. Almost everybody, I don't know if they get this wrong, I probably get this wrong, but they show up to the internal interview different than the external interview. They show up to the internal interview. It's like, oh, hey, Alex, man, how's it going? Yeah, it's like, it's like a different experience. It's like Daryl from the office. Like, it's, it's just not the same thing, right? She showed up and acted like she didn't even know me. And you're the only one who's ever truly done that. And it was at first off, like, I don't know if off-putting, but I was certainly, like, I noticed it. Obviously, I noticed it. I'm thinking about it. But she got every single one of those jobs every single time. In every the moment, did you try to like, did you try to diffuse her or disarm her and be like, no, it's me type of thing? Or you just, you played along right away. It was like an improv. I just played along right away. So I was like, you know, she's going to go for it. Let's go for it. Like, let's see how she, how far does she want to go with this? Um, and slid me the resume, acted like we'd never met. Um, it was really interesting because it was so far apart from any other internal interview I'd ever had experience doing. That's fantastic. I love that. Do you have a favorite question that you love to ask in an interview that you can find to get you get great insights out of? Um, one that I, I asked two questions. So most of my career has been in sales. So, you know, SVP of sales, director of sales, you know, all these different sales roles. So hiring a lot of salespeople. So I asked two, I've always asked two specific questions. One is, do you know who was going to be on this interview? Did you know ahead of time who was going to be here? My, even like, if, especially if there's two or more people. And there's usually two or more people. And if they say no, I'm like, oh, were they not on? You know, ask additional questions. And then if they're like, yeah, I knew. I'm like, cool. What can you tell me about all the people in the interview? Did you do your research? Did you prepare for this interview? And you can do that for pretty much any job, really. It doesn't have to be a sales job. Like, how much investment are you putting in getting this job? And if I it didn't that, even I got a question, going, what if they say no? That's got to be a deal breaker, right? If they're like, I didn't yeah, know it was so that, I just showed up. Yeah, so that will tell you a lot too, right? So if they didn't do any research, 
Yeah, no, maybe there's a may, uh, the, the interview invite didn't have any names listed. That this, you know, that's not their fault or their problem, absolutely. But more often than not, in a remote work environment or a remote interview environment, you know who's going to be there. You certainly know at least the person you're talking to, and you could tell them something about them. And it takes about 15 seconds to look at someone's LinkedIn and understand that. Yeah, I'm interested. So, like, I, I'm thinking about that a little bit. And if I, so let's say it was a one to one interview. And I said to them, yeah. I certainly have a prolific LinkedIn presence. And if you want to find me, it's not hard. Um, but if I was to ask them, so what do you know about me going in? Would you think that that comes across as kind of self-centered? Or do you think that they that would come across as I'm trying to understand what type of research you did? So this works really well in sales, especially with multiple people in an interview. And then so then it starts to break apart a little bit depending on the role and then if it's in person and if it's one-to-one, -one, right? But I can change that. You know, I could say, tell me all about our company, our market, and our competitors. Because mm. if you want to be a product designer here, if you want to be the person who's, you know, uh, running the, the people team here, I don't care what the job is here. I want you to understand, what do you know about our business? What What is the business we're in? And who else is in this business? Because you've done some research, you've actually taken some time to learn about it. Yeah, good. So you can you flip it around. There's that one. I've also usually asked people um, a couple of, this one varies a little bit, again, by role and responsibility. But I'll usually ask them how hard, I'm sorry, not how, how much do you like to work? And that one has, has never gotten me in trouble, but certainly got me a lot of weird looks because they said, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you know, like, so I try not to lead the witness, but I am a big believer in kind of like dropping the breadcrumbs, right? So if you're going to ask them a question that you want to get to a certain point, drop some breadcrumbs. You say, well, so are you like, got to keep it to that 40 range? You're like, listen, I'm, you know, I'm seven days a week, 20 hours a day. Like say something kind of crazy so that it's not like no one's signing up for that. But the reason I've asked is because usually people will tell you the truth, especially if you ask these questions later on in the interview. If you ask them, like, if you sat down first thing, hey, how much do you like to work? We have no rapport. We have no trust. You're not going to tell me the truth or you certainly don't know what I'm looking for. But at the end of the interview, say, hey, so how much do you like to work? Tell me about what that looks like for you. Someone tells you, oh, you know, I mean... I really like to keep it to like under 40. I mean, sometimes you've got that 42 hour work week for me, um, you know, but you know, I, I really think that I'm better if I'm in at nine out at five. And then I turn off all my machines. I turn off all my devices and I'm not there. I'm like, okay, is that what I want? Is that the culture of this business? Are we talking back about the balance and all that stuff, which I think ties back to this conversation entirely. And then somebody else who like, if they're like, I love to work, you're like, tell me about that. Well, so they'll walk you through it. Well, I, you know, I really find myself online at night, like, you know, just clocking back in, doing like research on this project. And like, tell me about a time where you had to go above and beyond. And what did that look like? But they will tell you the answer to that question. And if that matches with what your expectation is, great. If it doesn't, then that's going to be a problem. Yeah. yeah. All right. Listen, so I, I'm going to, I'm going to make this my own little therapy session here, because listen, I know a lot of people that I talk to a lot of leaders, especially if they're not in sales. I mean, we're all in sales as a founder, but you know what I mean? I, I'm, there's a lot of times there's two different things that I'm thinking about when I'm hiring salespeople that 
you know, I'd like to think that in some levels I, I have a high, you know, expertise when it comes to interviewing, but sales has been one that's been tough for different reasons at certain times. So two questions. One is this. First one is when you're interviewing somebody in sales, they are all kind of hopefully naturally presenters, naturally good at giving good information or giving the information that they want you to hear, selling themselves. How do you parse through that in a sales interview? And how do you kind of cut through that and kind of determine what you really need to look for in that person? This depends on your stage of your business. So if you're a really early stage business and this will evolve over time, you have probably different needs from those sellers. So step one, go back to find what it is you need. Really early on, you need grit, determination, temporal flexibility, because things are gonna change every single day. And you need what I think of as like, like fast thinkers. They can get on the call and somebody asks a question they never heard before and they can be like, but I know the answer to these other three questions, which means this one must be true because A equals B equals C. So therefore, because of the transitive property, A equals C, so there's your answer, right? Because they're not going to have this huge knowledge base sitting around for them to sit there and study forever, right? So you're looking for great determination and not the smartest person in the room necessarily, the fast thinker. Doesn't have to be the fast talker, but the fast thinker. Hmm. That will evolve over time. And so asking questions that get back to what you need at your stage is important. I also think that data is underrated in terms of being able to ask for performance metrics. Really, really good salespeople, revenue people, marketing people, salespeople, anybody revenue, that's a highly measurable part of the business. If they can't tell you their numbers cold, then they probably were one of those people who rode along on the team that was successful, but they themselves weren't necessarily a shining star, especially if they're coming from a very successful organization. They can hide inside that organization or uh, they're not taking it super seriously. I also always want to ask about if I need people who are constantly learning and evolving, tell me about recent podcast, recent book, recent something. What'd you learn? How'd you apply it? How did it make you better? And then the last thing I'm looking for is motivation. What motivates you? Is it intrinsic or extrinsic? And I, this is another question I'll usually ask where I'll lead the witness. Tell me, Oz, what motivates you? And before you do, do you want your name in lights on Broadway? Do you want to be standing in front of the entire organization winning a trophy? Like, what is it that you're, what motivates you? What are you trying to get? And there actually, for me, is a right answer, which is I want to win. The person who wants to win is going to do all of the hard things to get the feeling they are trying to get to, which is the feeling of success. People will say money is the right answer, but it's not. Because the person who is purely motivated by, by money will do the fastest, easiest thing to get to what they want. And that is usually lie, cheat, steal, cut corners, be the cancer within the sales organization, be the person that's difficult to work with because they're stealing everybody else's leads, whatever the thing is, because what they're trying to attack is dollars and cents. If money is simply the outcome of as the reward for what they truly desire, which is to win, winning is takes effort. Money can be accomplished without effort if you're willing to do other things. Mm, I really like that. All right, no, next question I'd ask you around that is, you know, I've had other people ask me before, you know, if I'm interviewing somebody and they're really good, right, in the interview, mm. I start to question, why are they available? Why are they interested? Because typically, if you're killing it and crushing it, then you're probably not leaving your current company. Is there any way that you can kind of cut through there? I might come down to motivation, but do you find like you get 
true answers there or do you have other means of kind of determining you know why is this person in front of me why are they interested people don't do enough reference calls nowadays i think that pendulum swung over the last couple of years i know i personally was guilty of it um do your reference calls if something's too good to be true it probably is and if you could do a backdoor reference check so that is if you know somebody who has worked at that company and just say hey i want to understand what's going on at the company this person says they're a top performer there. What's it like to work at that company? And how do they fit in within the greater organization, right? And at that point, I also am going with, I want that data. Like, tell me, and you're, you need to start listening for subtle cues, I versus we, right? There should be a healthy balance. Leaders should say we a lot, individual contributors. I'm looking for more eyes. I did this. For leaders, I want to hear a little bit more about we, and then I can say, well, what was your part in that? I said, well, I did that. And I do have a, a sales leader that I've worked with, and she does generally not like to hire people that were let go by a successful organization. She wants the people who already work there. Looking at passive candidates. Yeah, totally agree. I, I think it's great advice. And I think that that's good stuff. And that's stuff my stuff that I've been writing down and I will use going forward. So I appreciate that. We talked a little bit about candidate experience. It sounds like you do a really good job of kind of putting it out up front and then also along the way, letting people know what they're going to be uh, expecting. Let me ask you this. We all miss, right, when it comes to hiring, right? I'd love to say that anybody's 100%, but that's just not the case. Is there anything that you look back on and the people that you missed, maybe a theme or something that you wish you would have done differently um, that when you do miss, like you can point back to this and say, uh, this is probably where I got it wrong. More often... Almost always when I've missed, which plenty of times, you know, if you've been doing this for a while, you will. Like, that's how it works. It's for me, it's almost always come down to I went outside my process. I set and defined a process that was hopefully going to yield me some good results. And it had been yielding me good results. We make them do this style of interview. They have to go through these steps. They have to sell us something or they have to, we check the three references or whatever the thing is. And anytime I've broken that significantly, is when I've seen the, the the bad outcomes. And the reason I would do that was always self-serving. This is the, the, the real honest part of that is anytime I would take a shortcut because it was easier for me, I need to fill this director role. It's gonna take a long time. Got this person. All their coworkers have come to me individually and said they don't think that they're ready or right for the job. I'm gonna do it anyway because I need to fill that role so I can go do something else. Remember, leaders should talk about we, not I. So I'm worried about me first. And then, so I take a shortcut and it doesn't work out. I like that. Good answer. All right, selfish behavior, but selfish behavior by the leader that leads to them breaking their process, which they know is going to be, a, give them a better shot at being successful, leads to ignoring red flags. And then you get a bad outcome. I totally agree. Uh, let me ask you this. You run a technology company. Is there any type of technology that you leverage in the hiring process? Maybe it's while you're interviewing or maybe it's after the fact or behavioral assessments. And what, what type of technology do you leverage when it comes to, to hiring, if any? Um, shared note technology. So I do, I have used, you know, the glass houses. I'm not sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, what is it? The other ones that are on the market at Lever and all these ones that are on the market, right? Greenhouse and Lever and these things. And so I do like a shared hiring platform where everyone can see the notes and the interviews and all that stuff. I think that's useful um, in basically trying to kind of cross align everybody who's involved in the process. That I found to be uh, helpful. Um, 
I have looked at and I've used personality assessments to some extent at different companies. Um, I think that people tend to adopt those on a scale where it's not statistically relevant. So it gets, a, gets them into a little bit of like, you know, some false flags there where it's really hard to assess what the average looks like across three people. It's just not really super meaningful in that regard. I think if you do have a meaningful sample size, going and looking at things like, you know, strength finders or, um, you know, other tools where you're actually asking people like, you know, disc profile. I think those are useful in a larger context. Yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense to me. Do you, when it comes to like the questions that you ask, you listed a couple of favorite ones you ask, are those just ones that you've been asking previously? Do you base it a lot on the resume? Like where do you come up with the questions that you ask? Uh, write them all down ahead of time. I share them with the organization. Everybody who's going to be involved in the hiring process is working off a set of questions so that we're asking at least a certain percentage of questions, the same of everybody, so that we're able to compare and contrast answers. One of the things I saw in hiring when I first started doing this is they were all one-off. Like, I'm comparing this with you to a completely different inter interaction with somebody else, and they have really nothing in common. So now it becomes really like instinct, gut, and what other other bad outcome tool do you want to use there? So having an actual set of like standardized questions that aren't anything like, you know, sell me this pen, or if you were a tree, what kind of tree? Like no one cares, like, you know, or, you know, a lot of stuff where they tend to just over index on things that are not measurable or not like in depth. And I also have found that those questions need to be very specific and very pointed to what you're trying to learn versus just let's keep it light and keep it conversational. This is an interview. It's a performance-based measurement of your likelihood to actually ex excel at this job. And I'm doing you a pretty big disservice if I phone it in and do a really poor job and softball a bunch of questions in that don't let me understand if you're actually going to be good at this. I hire you, you fail, then you're out looking for a job, but maybe you already had one before I hired you. So I took you away from a job that was paying you to set you up for failure. That's 100% on me. Jimmy, I got to tell you, I got great news for you. You are in the top 2% when it comes to level of preparation and putting in the work. Because, and I, your philosophy is a thousand percent right. And I'd love you to scream it from the hilltops because that is, you're definitely preaching the choir. I totally agree with you. I appreciate the time you put into that. I think there's obviously opportunities in the future for technology that can even help that and enhance that even further for you. But I think you're doing a great service to the people that you're interviewing by putting in the time and the effort beforehand. Because to your point, their life changes dramatically one way or another when they come to your company. It can either be great or it can be not so great. And so you want to make sure you mitigate as much of those not great uh, chances and opportunities as possible and focus on the great ones. So kudos to you, man. I love that. Um, want to take it a little bit of a different direction. So what are you working on right now that you're really excited about? Gets you out of bed. So building something from scratch is harder than I actually, you know, you've been part of a lot of startups. Everything's harder when you're actually doing it from day one, right? You show up and there's a million or $2 million or $10 million of revenue. And you kind of forget about all the effort that it took to get there because you weren't part of it. Starting from zero is just, it's just a different animal and it's exciting. What gets me out of bed every morning uh, right now and really excited is that every day we get a little bit closer to something new and novel, right? Like the reason we started this company was we really didn't want to create the 10,000 10, MarTech platform or the 400th sales enablement tool. Like none of those things get me excited personally to build. And so why we wanted to build this is it doesn't exist on the planet. When we, when we deliver this to a customer, they're using a tool they could not buy anywhere else. 
And any tiny changes we make to it based on their feedback, we're marching towards that value that we know that nobody else is solving that problem for them. And it's really exciting that every day you wake up and go to bed, the world is technically a tiny bit different. Like, I mean, a tiny bit, right? You're building software, it takes a long time. But every day the world's a tiny bit different because of what we're doing, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, I love that. All right, sometimes here we like to go through LinkedIn and look at a post and ask you what you meant, what you were thinking when you wrote that. So Friday theory take, I'm torn. The same people who talk about the importance of personal connections at work seem like the same people talking about how office work is dead and they don't want to attend meaningless meetings. Help me understand, personal remote connections outside of ever talking to me on Slack. That's going to be a no from me. All right, tell me what spurred that and how you're feeling. I love it. Well, so obviously in social media, you're trying to like get people to read it and get noticed, right? So it's a fiery take for that for that purpose. Um, and so I was just, I remember thinking about that one day. I, I was, I don't know where I came from, but, you know, back to everything we've been talking about, you want people to be invested in the work and people really talk nowadays about how they want their work to be meaningful and they want to feel fulfilled by their work and they want it to have like, believe in the cause of the business or the thing that they're investing their time and every effort into. Well, then pouring yourself into that place seems like a really reasonable expectation. Not, Don't get it twisted. Your coworkers aren't necessarily your friends, right? You have, just because you work together doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be like lifelong buddies here, nor should you treat each other as friends or coworkers. You can be both. You don't have to be either. But expecting people to be completely remote and then completely async and you know, you're working from 10 to two in the morning and I'm working from nine to AM to 11 AM. And we never technically cross paths because we can work whenever we want. There's just some magic that happens when you bring people together and maybe you have to sit through that meeting remotely, but maybe you have to show up at the office once a week, whatever your business is doing, that's trying to make some of that ability for us to kind of build some of that connective tissue. I think it's important because I think that when you want to have a meaningful engagement with your business, feeling connected to the business, to me, is kind of like foundational to having a meaningful engagement with the business. Yeah, you're going to get me on a rant here now. So like, we're going to sound like a couple of founders, but at the end of the day, like we have, let me, you know, let me put this out up front. We have a hybrid schedule. There's two days off, you know, three days on Um, that connection to me is so important. Like, here's what it really comes down to. It's primal in that people want to be part of a community. They want to be part of a tribe. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And yet working in siloed hours and siloed work with little connection and little together. You know what? There's a tax that comes with some of that, right? Sometimes you're going to sit in a bad meeting. Sometimes it's going to feel monotonous. Sometimes you're going to have to sit next to Jimmy who just had, you know, tuna for lunch and it's not great. Right. But that, that tax allows for all the good that comes with community and, and, and working together and being around people that are pulling in the same direction. Now, if you don't feel that way about the people you work with, go find another job because that's the problem, okay? And I think one of the things when I hear a lot about from work from home, and there's tons of benefits to working from home, but to me, work from home a lot of times can be a catch-all for the real problem. The real problem might be, I hate being in traffic for an hour to and from, or I hate the cost of the commute, right? And I don't have anything fun to do during that commute, so I hate that. Or I don't get to spend enough time with my family, or I get distracted at the office. When I'm at home, I get more work done. Here's what I would say. Let's attack every single one of those things individually, right? And that's what we do with our hybrid schedule, right? Two of the days that we come into office, we've wiped out the need, right, to face commuting hours. You can either come in at eight and leave at four, 
or come in at 10 and leave at six. And we don't overly police it. And we use that 10 to four time block to come together. But if you want to leave early so you can get home for dinner for your family and avoid the commute, perfect. You wake up a little bit, you know, extra tired and you want to sleep in a little bit, perfect. Make the decision that morning. And so, you know, if it comes to distraction, let's find a way that we can like be more focused on our work. I just think that there's a way to attack all of these issues that allows for that community, that building, that culture, that collaboration, that just cannot be replaced in person, right? To some degree, right? That also gives you some of the benefits or gets to the root cause of the issues that you have. Now, listen, I will tell you why I work from home Wednesday, Friday, I'm having dinner with my family every night. I go to the gym, right? It's a different situation for me. And that's good. I'm glad I can build that into my week. But could I do that all the time? Would I want to do that all the time? I wouldn't, right? And quite frankly, I want people that feel that same way. Maybe not exactly those days, but that they want some of that community. They want some of that engagement, but they also want the flexibility from their employer. And so to me, people say flexibility, they immediately think of work from home or being in the office. And I look at it and say, there's a lot of different ways to be flexible. Let's attack the root cause of the issues and go from there. What do you think? I like that because you're, you know, you're looking at what are the symptoms of, uh, 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 actually, I think what you're looking at is what are the experiences that people are really summarizing with one just a broad sweep, this fixes all of them without any thought of the consequences of making that one big change, right? Like, you know, what does this do? We talk about mental health a lot nowadays. It's like a very open topic in the workplace is bringing mental health awareness into the workplace. Great. What's it doing for our mental health to be stuck at home by ourselves all the time? But let's ignore that because you know, what people necessarily always want and what is necessarily always best for them aren't always the same thing. They just aren't, right? If, what I want is to sit on the couch and 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 eat, you know, uh, eat Cheetos, as my old CEO used to say, and say, yeah, watch Netflix and eat Cheetos and hang out. And But what's best for me is to get up and move and maybe work out, eat healthier. Like what I want and what is going to give the best outcome are not necessarily the same thing. I think both things can be true. And it's just when you go all the way to one or all the way to the other. And listen, I'm fully remote employee right now because I'm in a company with you know less than 10 employees. But I would rather be face-to-face -face with more people more often. And so since I can't be, then what I'm talking about in that, that quote is, it's how are we creating meaningful interactions with those people and not saying, well, we went remote, now we're at home. Can we have less meetings? Can we all work whatever hours we want, whenever we want, not overlap? Can that email just be, a, uh, can that meeting just be an email? And we just start backing it up and backing it up. So it's kind of like, what are you a part of? You're not a part of this team because this isn't a team anymore. It is now just a group of people who are kind of all working around the same project. Yeah. Hey, he, here's the last thing I'll say about it. Okay. At the end of the day, as a founder of a company, as a leader, you've got to make decisions for a big group of people with a diverse mindset, experience, home life, whatever it may be. Okay. That is the thankless thing that I don't think people always think about is that, well, we got to make a group decision, which if you have a hundred people and you ask them a hundred, what's the perfect thing for you? Probably going to get a hundred different answers. Okay. And so, at least a hundred and one at least. Exactly. And so <laughs> it's impossible. It's an impossible thing. There's always going to be somebody that's like, this doesn't work perfectly for me, or this isn't, you're trying to make a decision that's for the group ultimately at the end of the day. And what's the best thing for the company and moving the company forward and taking into account individual wants and needs. And so for me, if you want to be on a sports team, right. If you want to play for the golden state warriors, 
guys, here's when we practice and here's the games. It's like, this is, this is what it is to be part of this. If you want to go to this university, this is when the class is, this is when we take the test. If you want to graduate from here, that's what it is. Same thing with work. There's some level of, I don't think it should be draconian. And quite frankly, I look back to the way it used to be five days a week, nine to five, that day, that never made sense either. I'm glad we shifted that paradigm and rethought that. But there is some level of, to be part of something bigger than yourself, it comes with some level of sacrifice and not, it's not always 100% on your terms. And so figuring that out, you know, I'm not trying to get anybody to feel bad for us, but at the end of the day, you got to make a decision for a group and you try to do it in the best interest of everybody and for the best interest of the growth of the company. And sometimes you make good decisions, sometimes you make bad, but that's really what it comes down to. And so I'm glad we got to talk about that. I love that LinkedIn post. I'm going to go find it. I'm going to like it, get you some more engagement on that. That's good stuff. I'm going to wrap up right here, Jimmy. What's one bit of career advice that you'd offer maybe yourself, you know, 15, 20 years ago, or maybe somebody early in career listening to this that you didn't know then, but that you know now? You are probably not ready for the next step. You're not as ready for the next step as you think you are. And so if you have good leaders who slow you down and tell you why you're not ready and then help you accomplish those things, you will be more successful in that next endeavor. And it will hurt and you'll be mad and you'll be pissed and you'll want to quit because you're not getting what you want and you're not getting what feels good. But if you have a good leader or a good organization who will explain to you what is in fact required to get where you want to go and then help you achieve it and is willing to push back when you aren't actually ready for it, then you every time I ever thought I was ready for the next thing and didn't get it as fast as I wanted to, I realized when I did that if I'd gotten to that thing when I wa- felt like I wanted to, I was totally not ready for it. I love that. You know, Every single ambition, time. ambition is awesome. Love ambition. You know what I like more than that for people I hire? Self-awareness. And so sometimes you do have to go along the path and honor the process and follow things. And sometimes it doesn't always happen at the time you want it to. But usually if you've got the goods, it will happen. And you got to have belief in that. You got to have confidence in that. So I think that is absolutely great advice. Jimmy, I really enjoyed our time. Thank you for being on Higher Learning. Looking forward to meeting in person in Nashville soon. Hopefully we can grab a, grab a drink and a bite next time I'm out there. Absolutely awesome. It was a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. All right, talk to you later.